You're listening to the recordings from our weekend with Brad Jerzak. This comes from the Saturday, session two. We hope you enjoy it. Well, that calls for prayer, doesn't it? <clears throat> Thank you. Um, let's just take a moment. Let's, let's pray. That, um, so in prayer, we're meant to behold the one on the cross-shaped mercy seat. And in, on the cross, we see the one who is God and who is the human. And we see the goodness of God and the affliction of humanity. And we see them intersect in that one person there. Perfect goodness, absolute affliction. Uh, between the between the nail prints in his hands, all, all of humankind and all of human history lies between those two hands. There's nobody outside the reach of those arms. Um, and all of your affliction. It's like a nail driving you into his heart. Um, some of us have been deeply afflicted and experienced terrible suffering. And maybe, even in your grief and anger, you've never been closer to God. Because you've experienced the fellowship of his suffering. And so we want to spend the next, uh, till, till lunch, considering what's happening there. Um, so, amen, but behold at will, <laughs> the one on the, on the mercy seat. <clears throat> Do you think, I, I think that'd be a good takeaway from today. You'll probably forget lots of stuff, but if you, could, uh, if you could think about the cross is the mercy seat, that will help. Um, so when I, w when I was, uh, um, when I was younger, I was taught about, about the cross, that the point of the cross was that God could actually not forgive sin. I was literally told that. Well, what they meant was God cannot freely forgive sin, despite the book of Hosea, where that's the whole point. That God can freely forgive sin. He is free to forgive sin, but, but we thought, well, no, he... He can't actually freely forgive sin. He must punish it, and that's the point of the cross. That the sin that God cannot freely forgive um, uh, creates an anger and a wrath in him, a disposition of enmity towards humankind that it can only be satisfied through the violent torture and death of his own son, a child sacrifice. And so... Since Christ experienced that punishment, you don't have to. That actually should be a universalist statement then, shouldn't it? If he experienced punishment for everyone, then we shouldn't have to. Um, but then we were also told, well, it, it wasn't really for everyone. It was just for the elect. And... Um, 
anyway, it just made it, it made God subject to or almost like his own anger. He had to somehow satisfy that so so he could forgive us. And so that's what I was taught and that's what I preached. Preached it pretty well. I could make it sound beautiful. Um, and then that began to unravel for me um, through scripture where some of, it, some of it just didn't add up, especially especially that the evangelists in the book of Acts never once mention it in any preaching of the gospel, whether to Jews or Gentiles, to the Sanhedrin or the philosophers in Athens. Never once. It was never about that for them. So that, that bothered me, that my gospel didn't sound like theirs. When your gospel sounds nothing like the apostles and evangelists who spread Christianity throughout the world, you, like it should make you do a double take. So I, I teach, I teach uh, the book of Acts sometimes to students, and one of the assignments I give them is I say, I want you to go through every sermon in the book of Acts and make an outline of what they thought was necessary when you spread the gospel. And so the students will, will first of all, find all the sermons, and, and, then they, and then they will begin to outline them. And then I'll say, you know, there's some things that aren't in every sermon, but what's common to virtually all of them? They, they would share it. And it, usually it was something like this. God sent his son. You killed him. God raised him from the dead. Jesus is Lord. That, that's, the, that's sort of the four spiritual laws and acts. And so, um, so I began to really revisit the cross and what it's about and what it's for. And what I found out is when I, when, when I no longer believed it was that God had to punish his son instead of you, then many of my brothers and sisters would say, well, then, what's, then why did Jesus die? As if that could be the only possible reason. What we heard in the song that was just played is the you killed him part is in there as it was a martyrdom. But it, like it was the ultimate martyrdom. When, when um, the martyrs in the 16th century would die, or when the martyrs at the beginning of the 4th century would die, an amazing thing would happen. Revivals would start. Um, why would revival start? And it was because, because people wanted what the martyrs had. And what did the martyrs have? They, they completely lost their fear of death. Because the living Christ, the resurrection of Christ, had freed them from it forever. So um, I, I have this spiritual father, Archbishop Lazar Pahalo. And um, he has a life verse. When I say a life verse, it means whenever he just goes into autopilot while he's preaching, he always just quotes this. So it's like every second sermon he ever preaches, he always quotes this same verse. So it's pretty important to him. It's become important to me too. It's in Hebrews 2. Here's the gospel according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. For as much uh, the children as the children are partakers of flesh and blood. Okay, we got, let's just slow down. 
the, the children, who are the children of God? The children of God are people who, all those people who have partaken of flesh and blood. What does it mean to partake of flesh and blood? Is it just talking about the meat in your, under your skin and the, and the blood flowing through there? Um, no, flesh means more than that. Flesh has to do with um, our passions, our desires, our struggles. Uh, flesh includes our bodies, but it also includes our emotions. To be flesh is to be children of Adam, who's a child of God, according to the genealogies. So ultimately, then, then Paul will say that every family in heaven and on earth derives its name from one God and Father. We like to think of the, the, the church as the only family of God. Well, it is one. But there's this bigger thing where the, actually the children are, are those who've partaken of flesh and blood and have experienced suffering in the flesh. And so it's not just that Christ takes on humanity. He takes on flesh. Romans 8 will say, the likeness of sinful human flesh. What? Without sinning. But he didn't come as unfallen Adam. He came as a son of a woman. He was a child of Adam, a child of the fall, with a, a body that would die, and he takes on flesh. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same. So in John 1, it doesn't say the word, of, the word became human. It says the word became flesh. And so Christ assumes all that it is to be human. Let's even call it that flesh is the human condition. All right, let's, let's be uh, interactive again for a few minutes. What, what is the human condition? You know that expression? I like that expression, but like, what's it mean? Frailty. 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 That's really good. He, you, young lady, are frail. We are not as young as we once were. That's what my grandma says. We're not as young as we once were. We found out we're frail. And Christ assumes all of human frailty. Okay, what else? What else is the human condition? Yes, sir. It's possible for you to sin. I wonder if it was possible for Jesus to sin. That's like a huge debate in church history. But we could for sure say this, that in his flesh... Sin presented itself to him as a possibility. Now, whether in, his, in who he was, he could have submitted to that, you, you can kind of get in trouble either way you go. So let's just say, <laughs> in his flesh, he experienced real temptation. It wasn't fake Maybe we could call it, he faced his potential shadow side. Okay, anything else? Yes. 
guess the condition of death and disease, you know, the, the, the atmosphere we live in of death. That, like, that's huge. So, so you've got, you said a few things there. So one is death, like mortality, bodies that can decompose just as we're living. Disease, um, and, but you said something else. Death, disease, and the, the environment, the condition, the human condition includes in, environments where you, like, you can't hardly buy food that won't give you cancer, Right? You can't hardly breathe air that won't corrode your lungs. You can't, you know, and all of these. So, so the human condition is it truly includes mortality. Okay, anything else to the human condition that rings a bell? Suffering. Yeah. Yeah. And pleasure. Pleasure. The ability to experience goodness and beauty and pleasure, and that's very human. And desire. Yeah. In all the good ways. Inasmuch as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death, he might destroy him who had the power of death. That is the devil. And let's go to the next verse. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So this version of the gospel, the Hebrews version of the gospel is, Christ comes into the world to assume the human condition, and in assuming the human condition to the uttermost, including death, he destroys death itself and thereby destroys the fear of death in those who get it so that whatever the devil is, that's been destroyed and has, and has lost all its leverage. What do you do if, what, what, like, what would, what would the devil do if you're not afraid of death anymore? What are you going to do? Kill me? I died at my baptism. I can't die. Oh, I can depart. I, I'm sad that my confessor moved on to the next life. But he didn't go on to the death. There's, a, like, there's no such thing. Jesus wasn't lying when he said that, you know, if, if you believe in me, you'll never die. Because what we thought death was, was non-being. The end of existence. The gloomy depths of Sheol or whatever. He's like, no, that's not a thing anymore. Cool. And so we still go through the hard process of the, this dying thing, which is like horrendous quite often. And, and it's like you, but the New Testament won't dignify it normally with the word death. It's departing, it's falling asleep, it's, you know, joining the cloud of witnesses. Why not? Because that would misrepresent what's happened. He's like utterly destroyed death. He's renovated Hades. He went to the place where in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, it says no one can cross that chasm, and he does. 
No one can come back from there. And he does. And he leaves, leads a parade behind him. So this is, this is an interesting kind of gospel. So why does Jesus die? Here's what the early church said. Especially like guys like St. Athanasius the Great. These are... I, some people get on my case about quoting the fathers a lot. It's like these are the people who compiled the New Testament. Determined what would be in it. Gave us the doctrines of the deity of Jesus Christ and the doctrine of the Trinity. I kind of pay attention to them. And... So here's what he would say. Why did Jesus die? And why did he die on a cross? And so th this is a great book to get on the, on the incarnation. It's just a little book. And he walks through this. And here's some things that he says. What was the human condition at the very bottom line? I mean, it's not just sin. He, God can forgive sin. God does forgive sin. God has forgiven all sin. We still have a problem. Sin kills us. So the real problem is death. And then with it, the fear of death. The real problem is death. And so, so Athanasius reasoned this from the scriptures, especially Hebrews 2 and other passages like that. To overcome the problem of death, God has to enter death. But God can't die. So how will he do that? He assumes the human condition. He takes on a human body that is corruptible and corroded and able to die. And, he, and, and in that body, God is able to enter death. And he does. Why does Jesus die? To enter death. What happens when Jesus enters death? He doesn't just send his body there. He goes there as God. Wait a minute. But God can't die. I know. What will happen if God goes there? Death dies. It blows up from the inside. Anyone see Men in Black? Okay, for the let's see your show of hands. How many Okay. How many have not seen Men in Black? Okay. So, about half and half. Let me <laughs> Let me explain. No, there's no time. Let me sum up. There is a scene in Men in Black where Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith have to fight an alien who's like a giant cockroach. You know about those here. I don't even have to call them giant cockroaches here because they just are, that's redundant. <laughs> but this particular cockroach alien is like 12 feet tall. And so Tommy Lee Jones comes with his like special alien killer gun and he gets in the face of this big bug and he and he starts taunting it until the bug swallows him whole and, whoop, and you're like oh no he's eating Tommy Lee Jones death is won and then Will Smith gets in his face and I will summarize you shouldn't have done that <laughs> and then suddenly from inside the bug you hear and then Boom! And the bug blows up from the inside, and there's guts everywhere and slime, and there's Tommy Lee Jones, and he's still alive. This is the theology <laughs> of the early church. Literally. Uh, you've quoted St. John Chrysostom's Paschal homily here before. I'll just, I'll just 
but not everyone's heard it probably, right? Can, can you look it up for me? So um, St. John of Antioch is this anointed preacher. In fact, his, his preaching's so anointed that they change his name to John Chrysostom, which means silver tongue. Not because he's slick, but because he's like a powerful preacher of the gospel who gets Hebrews 2, who gets this idea that it's not about, oh, God's got to find someone to punish. No, God's got to destroy death for everybody. So jo John of uh, Chrysostom preaches this on the Easter Sunday. Well, we call it Paschal, uh, the Paschal weekend, because in the East they combine the death and resurrection as one thing. And they call it the cross. The cross is his death and resurrection, which is a victory over death. And so at, at this service, he preaches it. And everybody sings all through the service over and over. Christ is risen from the dead. Not was, is. Trampling down death by death. And upon those in the tomb, bestowing life. Got it? So I'm not going to read the whole sermon. Um, but when he preached it the first time, the people were so struck with awe at the power of the gospel that they said, we must preach this sermon every Pascha, Passover, until the Lord returns. So far, they have for 1,700 years, 1,600 years. Um, I won't read it all, but it doesn't take long to read it all. It's really four paragraphs, but I'm going to read you the end. So some of you have heard Caro preach this, but it's this. Why, what are the implications of God as love? It means that God will pursue you all the way to the bottom of the grave. So he says this about halfway through. Let none lament his poverty, for the universal kingdom is revealed. Let none bewail his transgressions. For the light of forgiveness has risen from the tomb. Let none fear death. For death of the Savior has set us free. He has destroyed death by undergoing death. He has despoiled hell by descending into hell. He vexed it even as it tasted his flesh. Um, another translation of that is, he embittered it. What that means is, literally, he gave it a stomachache, and it threw him up. That's literally what, and, and so where does he get that imagery? Isaiah foretold this when he cried, hell was filled with bitterness when it met thee face to face below. Filled with bitterness. So bitterness, we just think of bitterness as I'm bitter at you because I'm mad. No, like bitterness is like nauseous or nauseated. Induces vomiting. This is bitterness, okay? So what hell has, was filled with bitterness when it met thee face to face below. Filled with bitterness for it was brought to nothing. Filled with bitterness, for it was mocked. Filled with bitterness, for it was overthrown. Filled with bitterness, for it was put in chains. Hell received a body and encountered God. It received earth and confronted heaven. O oh, death, where is your sting? O oh, hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen. 
and you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen, and the evil ones are cast down. Christ is risen, and the angels rejoice. Christ is risen, and life is liberated. Christ is risen, and the tomb is emptied of its dead. For Christ, having risen from the dead, is become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be the glory and power now and ever and unto ages of ages. Amen. That'll preach. You should see when I do that in a black church. Woo! Because <laughs> there's a rhythm to this beautiful poetic imagery uh, um, that is expressing the good news of Jesus Christ, that God took on human flesh in order to die, to enter death, to destroy death forever. So you don't need to be afraid ever again. And so in the early church, let's say in the time of Athanasius, he says in, in the incarnation, how do we know Jesus is alive? They didn't go to the empty tomb. We know Jesus is alive because we aren't afraid of death in the face of martyrdom. We know Christ is alive because even our supposedly weak women prepare for death and their children jump into it after them. It's like, whoa, that's freaky. Yeah, but watch the world turn upside down now. I want that. So uh, not all that long ago in this last decade, I remember ISIS uh, captured some Coptic Christians. Coptic Christians are Egyptian Christians. And they were in Libya. Some of you may have seen this. And they lined them up on a beach in front of the Mediterranean. They put them in orange suits. There was a reason for that. And that is because in this radical, violent form of Islam, um, they were trying to undo the shame of what happened in Abu Ghraib, Iraq, when allied um, uh, guards humiliated Muslim prisoners who were in orange suits, sexually assaulted them, mocked them, spat on them, hung them uh, by, by wires and electrocuted them. And they're like, we have to undo that shame, but they didn't know, how, they didn't know that the blood of Christ alone can do that. So what they have to do is try to undo the shame through vengeance. So they take these Coptic Christians and they put them in these orange suits and they behead them one at a time. And it's amazing because they wanted to show off their vengeance. And what they show off is these Christians praying the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And you can see the peace in their faces. I don't remember the exact number, but it was about 13 of these guys. They go through... And they just had no fear of death. And the peace of God that passes, surpasses all understanding is, is like radiating from their faces. And they, they check their ID and they find out one of them is not a Christian. It's like, oh, you can go. The guy's like, I'm not going anywhere. I want what they got. And he's beheaded along with them. Because he would, he would rather face martyrdom knowing that kind of freedom then receive a freedom from walking away from that kind of love. Isn't that crazy? 
that, that's a very ancient story too. I mean, this just happened, but also early 300s, same thing happened. There was a whole company of Roman soldiers who were persecuting Christians, and, um, and they decided we're not going to worship the emperor anymore. It's like, but if you don't worship the emperor, we're going to kill you. It's like, then I guess you'll have to kill us. So <laughs> they take them out down into this icy cold water, and they're going to kill them with hypothermia. And they set up a nice uh, steam room. And they're like, anyone who wants to renounce Christ, you can get out of that icy cold water and go into the steam room. And, um, and they're shivering, and they're shivering, and they're shivering. And they're not having a supernatural experience of not feeling cold. It's like they're dying. One of them finally says, I, you know, I'm going to get out. And so he gets out, goes to the steam room. He ends up dying on the spot. It's weird. And then one of the soldiers has a vision and of crowns, and they're martyrs' crowns. But there's one extra crown now because the one guy bailed. So one of the soldiers that's killing these guys steps down into water. I want what they have. He becomes one of those martyrs. I think they actually didn't die that night that way, and they had ended up like having to stone them to death or something. It's like really sad. This martyr thing's not good. But we did it. God didn't need a God didn't need that, but something about because because Christ has assumed flesh. He's with them co-suffering and and they but they feel the divine life inside of them. It's like amazing. So now we start thinking about the cross that way as victory over death and freedom from fear and forgiveness from sin freely and what do we do we turn to that kind of love it's like wow and he did this for everyone so so it kind of uh, where's the wrath there it's us we wrathed him and in response he forgives us in response he enters all the way into death and blows it up from the inside, like Tommy Lee Jones. Right? All right. The power of the power of that death, the power of that cross. I want to just flip over now to Romans five. We need to spend more time, I think, in Romans five, because what it says is that he did. It. We loved him because he first loved us. In other words. Our faith is a response to something that's already been done. We do, our faith doesn't purchase our salvation. Our faith is re in response to our salvation. So um, there's three things here that I, I noticed in Romans 5. Verse 6. When we were without strength or powerless, in due time Christ died for the Christians. No? Do you see how slowing down helps sometimes? <laughs> Christ died for the ungodly. He dies for the ungodly. When we were powerless and ungodly, he already died for us. And it says, for scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were 
sinners when we were ungodly, when we were powerless. He already died for us. So who does that include? Everybody. Everybody. Uh, except maybe the righteous people. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. That's a, that's a good translation. Some, it's, that's what it actually says in the, in the Greek. Some translations add wrath of God. It's not wrath of God in any Greek manuscript in the whole world. It's not sa we're not being saved from God. We're being saved from wrath. What's wrath? Wrath is what, what sin does to us. The wages of sin is death. That's the wrath. God is saving us from God is saving us from the wrath. Through Jesus. God was 2 Corinthians 5 will say that where is God on Good Friday? God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. He's not counting up your sins and needing to punish them. God's in Christ. He's not holding the spear that killed the, that poked into Christ's side. He's, he's not holding the hammer that nailed the... He's not part of the torture. He's in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Zechariah 12 will say it this way. Yahweh says, you will look on me, the one you have pierced. And so there is God on a cross. Saving us from wrath. Saving us from death. Saving us from shame. Saving us from the human condition. Saving us from our addictions. Saving us from our hatred. That's the wrath. And he's saving us from that. Verse 10. For if, if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. That's, that's really striking. Some of us thought, you don't get forgiven until you repent. Some of us thought, you aren't reconciled until you become a Christian. What does Romans 5 say? When you were his enemies, he already reconciled you. I, I think we just got to say, is that true or not? Because that's not the script I preached. I preached, if you come forward and say the magic prayer, you will be reconciled. That's not what Paul believes at all. When you were ungodly, when you were sinners, when you were powerless, he died for you. When you were enemies, he reconciled you. How much more then shall you also be saved by his life? Well, so that's interesting. Reconciled is past tense. He's already done it. Saved is future tense. What's that talking about? Any ideas? I was reconciled. I'm going to be saved. Saved from death. He's talking about the resurrection. It's like he's already reconciled you to it. You're, you're in. And now respond so you can enjoy the father's house. Remember the prodigal son? He was, all, he was a son even when he's in the pig pen. 
already a son. God, God already loves him. God's already got a banquet waiting for him, you know, but it's like he's not enjoying it. So like, is there, even though we're already reconciled, is there a summons to respond? Of course there is. Come home. You've been reconciled. You have been reconciled. Come home. And so we come home and we're reconciled. It's like, yeah, but what about this death thing? Taken care of. I made up a cool thing in my head. Sometimes I do that. I, I, here's my cool thing. It's a conversation with Jesus and his disciples. Because we're really smart now, us disciples. We're really smart. And so Jesus says, unless, unless a, a seed goes into the ground and dies... How does the rest of the verse go? Do you know this verse? Unless that's that's how I hear it in my head. Anybody more specific? Here we go. It remains alone. And then, but I can't remember after that. Someone look it up. Unless a, a seed goes out into the ground and dies, it remains. But. <laughs> but if it dies, it brings forth much fruit. If it dies, it brings forth much fruit. And so then I'm a clever disciple. I'm like, Jesus, don't you know that when a seed goes into the ground, it doesn't really die i mean you made all things have you not worked out biology and jesus says exactly the seed goes into the ground and you think it's dead but is it dead not if death's dead it just appears dead and so it springs up. And so it's like we're going to, yes, we'll die, but, we, but really? No, you'll be saved. You'll be saved by his, his life. He dies, he dies with you so that by his life you're raised. That's quite amazing. And all of this, all of this um, was established on the cross or maybe earlier, but certainly not when you said the prayer. Saying the prayer was just your speech you gave to him on the way home to a father who's running down the lane while you're still far away. And not only that, verse 11, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Ah, okay. So now we, so it's already accomplished and now we receive it. So I'm not saying there's no response. I'm not saying there's no response. Mark that down. Brad Jerzak said that I'm not saying there's no response. I'm saying when you find out you've been reconciled, you will respond. It's like this. My friend Dean, he's my wife's pastor. He's also a chaplain in a prison. And in the prison, he goes in and he wants the prisoners to know that they have been reconciled while they're still enemies. And that's good news, right? Here's the problem in prisons. I used to do prison visitation and Bible studies and stuff like that. And, and the amazing thing about prisons are, like, there's nobody there that's guilty. It's just amazing. 
everybody has been locked up and they didn't do it. Like 100% of them. And even, I mean, even if they were convicted, well, they were all convicted because they're there. But how did they get convicted? Well, because somebody else's fault. I was framed or my, or, or my lawyer screwed up. Or the judge was corrupt, but it's never my fault. So they're in this like serious kind of denial. We'll just call it like the, they're in denial of their sin. And so the other chaplains go in, and what do they think their mission is? To break through their denial by accusing them of their sin. If I could just convince them they're sinners. It's like they're, but they don't know that, that prison populations are sinless. It's quite amazing. And so you got all these chaplains ranging from fundamentalist evangelicals all the way to Wiccas. And so Dean goes in and he's like, I, I want to experiment. Like he, he was a little nervous about doing this in his church. But he's like, I'm in a prison. No one's going to find out. <laughs> so I'm going to experiment. I'm going to experiment. Here's his experiment. Um, he starts to go to the prisoners. And by the way, we stop at when? 1230? Is that true? That's the plan? Okay, so he goes into these prisons, and he, and he kind of sneaks up to the prisoners while the other chaplains aren't watching, or the prisoners, right? And he's like, you're in. <laughs> and they're like, I'm in what? I'm like, this whole love of God thing, you're in. They're like, what do you mean? It's like, while you were still his enemy, he already reconciled you. You wouldn't believe what happens. They're like, I can't be. Why not? <gasps> Confession time. <laughs> but I murdered that guy. Really? Because <laughs> I was pretty sure you hadn't done it. I'm just saying you're in. It's like, I don't know. I can't be in. You don't know how bad I am. How bad are you? <laughs> Confession. Suddenly, you've got a bunch of sinners. Who saw that coming? He said, I understand. You're in. You're like, ooh, i got to think about this. Three months later, he's baptizing them, one after the other after the other. And the chapels are doubling in size. And the other chaplains are going, how did that happen? I told them they were in. You can't do that. They have to repent. He's like, they just did. <laughs> Why did they repent? But, 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 but. So... And this was, this was the message of Hosea. That God comes to Hosea and he says, he, he says take your unfaithful wife or whatever she was, or take her, mar marry her, tell her, tell her she is already forgiven. And then he says, and the good news actually will cause them to repent. The good news that they're already forgiven brings about the repentance. The kindness of God leads to repentance. That's Romans 2, right? The kindness of God leads to repentance. The good news that Christ has already reconciled them generates the response of love through which they begin to enjoy eternal life. And so it's a bit of a dance there, isn't it? Okay, now, then he just gets heretical. Um, he's got a long bracket here, so I'll just skip the bracket because that's like long. But 
Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, thus death spread to all men because all sinned, bracket, 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 where does the bracket end? At the end of 17. Therefore, through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to the elect. Paul, you're not a universalist, are you? The free gift came to all men, resulting in an altar call. No, wait. The free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For who? What does Paul say? Now I'm meddling. All right, so I'm just going to have to name the elephant in the room. But Paul caused it. So I, I was asked even at, at break, and for the last 10 years, like, are you a universalist? Here's why I say no. Pop universalism is the dominant form of universalism in the world. I'm going to define it for a moment, but just so you know. So there's this big brush word called universalism. And it's the, and the dominant form is pop universalism. That's my word for it. Where sin doesn't matter, Jesus doesn't matter, the cross doesn't matter, there is no judgment, and you don't need to respond. Well, I don't believe that. That's, that's like heresy. That's a real mistake. By the way, I, if I say heresy, I'm, I'm saying two things. One is formally, not just like I don't agree with that. Formally, in the historic Christian church, that would not align with the creeds. The Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. So I, so I mean it doesn't align with the creeds. And second, I just mean it's a mistake. I don't mean you're a bad person. But I am saying that the idea that, G that sin doesn't matter, Jesus doesn't matter, the cross doesn't matter, there's no judgment, and you don't need to respond. That's just like a really big bad mistake, and it's not the gospel. So why would I call myself a universalist? That's silly. But I will say this. I will say this. Paul says, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. And I believe the Bible. And, and so we need a different word for that than, than um, universalism. We need a word that describes the impact of sin that is devastating for everybody, and it, it kills literally everybody. We need a word that describes the absolute necessity of the incarnation of Jesus Christ into this world to come and, and to defeat death, to die and rise from the dead. You need a word that includes that, because that's the gospel, right? You need a word that makes in the entire cosmos revolve around the cross. Because it is by the cross, the death, the descent into Hades and the resurrection that any are saved. The cross isn't optional, it's the only way. You need a word that takes into account the reality that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for our deeds. 
and it will be a great and terrible day. And there will be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. You need a word that includes that. And you need a word that includes the necessity of a response, a free and willing response to the love of God that doesn't involve holding a gun to your head. I might call that, I might use, I'm, I'm just kind of trying to come up with a word that would include those five things. I know, the gospel! <laughs> so, so does that mean that even, even when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ and I say, I wasted my whole life and I have nothing to offer you and I'm just weeping, is there still hope that God might welcome me Romans 8, death cannot separate you from the love of God. Can you imagine if God, if Jesus were to say, you met Jesus, right? And you're like, oh, darn, I died three minutes ago. If only I'd said the sinner's prayer six minutes ago. And he's like, no problem. Or would he say, I'm sorry, there's nothing I can do now. Death is bigger than me. No, no. Behold, I was dead, and now I'm alive, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And my mercy endures till you die. No. Forever. My loving kindness is everlasting. So, here's my proposal. My proposal is that sin, sin destroys everyone. Jesus needed to come. He needed to die to enter death, to destroy death, and to rise again. And he calls us into eternal life. And some of us may not even say yes until we come to that great and terrible day of judgment and we are weeping and wailing and gnashing our teeth. Why did I waste my life? I wish I could respond now. My, my proposal is, I hope you can. I would be really cautious about this. You don't get to teach that as doctrine. I'm just sharing a conviction I have today. You don't get to teach that as doctrine. I'm sharing a conviction I have to, and you don't have to share that conviction. But I, I do. Um, and, and the reason I do is because, like, God is love. God is love. So, so, no, I'm not a universalist, but I do believe in, I do believe that through the righteous act of one man, the free gift comes to all men with the result, the result of justification in life. So, um, so do I believe you need to respond? We covered this. Yeah. Or you could live in the pig pen. Don't live in the pig pen. Right? So here's how it looks in practice then again. So um, Steph comes over to my house. Steph was my oldest son's girlfriend in high school. They broke up for a few reasons. Um, he was a Christian. She wasn't. But that's not why they broke up. It's because she had like serious depression issues and anxiety issues. And she would medicate those, those, those issues with acting out in various ways, substance abuse and so on. And um, it was really miserable. And one day my son's praying for her and he says, uh, Steph, uh, or God says to him, we'll say God says to him in retrospect, because the thought comes. I want you to 
call Steph and take her out and give her the gift of a good day. That was the goal. So Stephen calls up Steph, and he says, hey, Steph. Like, they decide to still be friends, and they actually were. That'll, like, almost never happen. And she says, yeah, okay. So she comes over, and Stephen's still upstairs getting ready, so I answer the door. And at the time, I'm, I'm writing a book called Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, Hell, Hope, and the New Jerusalem. She comes in the door, and, and I'm like, hey, Steph, how's it going? She's like, oh, not good. Uh, but we're going to go out for the day. It's like, oh, that's great, that's great. She said, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm writing a book. She says, what's it about? And I just sort of blurted out, hell. <laughs> and she, like, rolls her eyes. And I'm like, oh, no, no, it's not what you think. I'm, in my book, I'm talking about how we don't have to threaten people with a forthcoming hell. But rather, people are already in hell. And there's a God of love who wants to welcome us out of hell. A response is necessary. And she goes, I know exactly what you mean. I'm like, really? She goes, let me tell you about my hell. Confession. And she just blurts out like the whole thing. It's really like, why are you telling me this? To hear, that, to hear that God is not threatening us with hell, but that he has recognized you're already perishing. And that he's come into the world to rescue those who are perishing. She completely got it. She gives her old confession. And I'm like, I have an idea. We'll do a thought experiment. Uh, that's my secret code for can we pray together. But like it's too religious. I, I said, you want to do a thought experiment? She's sure. That sounds, she's curious, right? I said, um, if you could meet God at all, anywhere at all for a one-on-one. -on -one, where you could tell him about your hell, where would you meet him? And she, goes, she does this. She goes, I see him. He's under a tree. It's a lone tree in the middle of a big field, and he's sitting at the bottom of the base of the tree. <laughs> I'm like, she's in an open vision. That's what we called it as charismatics. Right? Oh, she went. She entered an open vision. Well, okay. <laughs> she, she sees in her head, but her eyes are open. Okay, so she's seeing... She's seeing God under a tree, a lone tree in the, in the middle of a field. And I said, do you think you could start moving towards him? And she said, I think so. I'm like, go ahead and do that. See what happens in this thought experiment. And she begins weeping. <gasps> He's so kind. I didn't know he was like this. Like, he's gentle. And he's welcoming. I'm like, well, what did you think he was like? Well, you know, condemning and judgmental and critical, like Christians. <laughs> I'm like, easy. <laughs> I'm one. And I said, well, just can you move as close as you can? It's like, okay. So in her open vision, she's moving close to him. What expression do you see in his face? And now she's sobbing. He's like, I, I say, what, do you, what are his eyes saying to you? He knows and he cares. Whoa. Is that legal? Can she, can she, is she allowed to have visions? She's not a Christian yet. And then, and then he's saying he knows and he cares. And, and, then, and then I said, is there, and I want her to repent now, right? So I got an agenda. So I'm going to get her to repent. I'll say, Jesus, is there anything else you want to say to her? <laughs> Hint, hint. <laughs> he doesn't obey me. 
She says this. He says, Steph, if you're being thick, I will say to you, Steph, you're being thick. And I'm like, now I'm confused. I'm like, maybe this is a false Jesus. And I said, is that good? And she goes, it's very good. I'm like, why is it very good? It, she said, it, because it, it means he will never blow sunshine up my ass. That's what she said. That means like sugarcoat things. And we're like, that was the most interesting thing I've ever heard. And she goes, I'm like, what do, what do you mean? It means he'll never lie to me. And everybody lies to me. And then she says, this is weird. I've never been a revelator before. I'm like, where did you even learn that word? <laughs> By the way, that's one of, that's John who wrote the book of Revelation. That's one of his formal titles, St. John the Revelator. And now it's St. Steph the Revelator. And, uh, and I'm like, do, do you realize where you just met him? It's like, yeah, under a tree. Yeah. Where is the tree? It's in her heart. He was waiting in her heart for her to come home. This is what St. Augustine says. This is what, um, uh, well, a bunch of other fathers. It's like, when I, when I ran off, into the world looking to medicate my pain with whatever, partying and substance abuse and craziness, God didn't leave me. I left. And he's calling me home to the Father's house, which happens to be my own heart. I'm like, okay, that's not evangelical. But what it meant is he'd already reconciled her. And now she needs to be, she needs to come home. So the, what, so here's what my pop universalist friends, like, it, she doesn't really need to come home. I'm like, of course she does. She's dying. They might say, well, there is no hell. There absolutely is a hell. She's been in it for 18, 20 years. She's perishing. And so Jesus says in John 3, I didn't come into the world to condemn the world. It's already condemned. Even like totally made it uninhabitable. Australia's burning people. No need to respond. Are you kidding me? And to love, to surrender to love. We don't like to surrender. But I like to surrender. I get massages. I surrender to massages. And, and the masseuse says, stop fighting me. He really does. I'm like, I'm trying here. I'm trying. I'm trying to surrender. It's like, I know. It's hard to enter his rest. And so there's, there, I really do see a sin problem. I see the need for Jesus. I know the power of the cross to set us free from death and the fear of death. I am aware that I will pass through a fiery judgment where every attachment I have must be burned up before I enter the kingdom of God. And I bet I'm going to weep, but I also believe mercy triumphs over judgment. So... That's a conviction I have. Why did I tell you all that? It's, it's connected to the power of the cross and that homily by St. John Chrysostom. What he did on the cross is powerful and effective and results in justification for fourth line, last two words, all the men. It doesn't say men, women. 
all humanity, all humanity. Um, like I promised, I promised Carol I wouldn't do all of this today because she doesn't want to be in trouble, but she can clean it up. Um, St. Gregory of Nazianzus, or he's also called Gregory the Theologian, he did make this point about the human condition. He said this, and I think Carol's preached this here too, what is not assumed is not healed. In other words, Christ assumed every element of the human condition to heal every element of the human condition, including death itself. Why did Jesus die? To enter death, to destroy death, to raise us to life. I'm going to see if we can get an icon up here. Do you, is it possible to search online there and post a picture? No? Yeah, there's time. So go to, go to Google or whatever, Google Images, and type in resurrection icon. And we're going to see this whole thing in a picture. The entire gospel of the early church, of Tommy Lee Jones blowing up the bug, it's all there. Um, and there's going to be a whole bunch of different versions of it, but can you pull one up? Yep, resurrection icon. And so I'm going to tell you the backstory to this while he's looking. So in the early church, they begin to gather strands of the Old Testament and the New Testament that describe what John Chrysostom has said in his homily, they're not just making it up. He didn't just come up with this, this idea. They're gathering together what the Bible says about it, and they create a narrative that pulls together the strings of the story. And the idea is this, that when Christ dies, um, he's going to enter Hades, the place of the dead. And in the narrative that they put together, there's a fun one called the Gospel of Nicodemus. It's not in our canonical Gospels because it's a theological, imaginative story. It's not an account of what literally happened. Um, it's not an eyewitness account of the life of Christ like you have with the four Gospels. But in the Gospel of Nicodemus, it's an attempt by the early church to pull together the story. And so in the story, you, you st uh, we, we see Jesus is being interrogated by Pilate. It's during, um, during the trial. And then it flips over to Hades as a place. It's not a literal place, but it's a, you know, they, they picture this place. And, and Satan and Beelzebub, or Beelzebub and Hades, but there's two characters, two wicked characters, right? And they're talking about Jesus in the trial. And I think it's a, a, a Hades is saying to, to Satan, don't let him come here. Don't, there it is. Don't let him come here. Why not? Because John the Baptist is here. Where's John the Baptist? John the Baptist is in Hades. What's he doing in Hades? What he always does. What does John the Baptist always do? Prepare ye the way of the Lord. <gasps> He's preparing the way of the Lord in Hades? This is a bad sign. Don't let him come here. And then Satan's like, but I've got him. 
like we have them cornered now. I've got I've got the governor and I've got the Sanhedrin and they're unanimous and they've condemned him to death. I've got him. And Hades is like, I don't think you got him. Don't do it. And Satan's like, we got I got him. I got him. And boom, back to the back to Hades and you look inside and there's John the Baptist and he's preaching the gospel in Hades. And he's saying, Jesus is coming here. Get ready to repent because he's coming with good news. This is from the epistles of Peter where he says Christ, Christ went into, preached the gospel to those who'd been condemned in the flesh. And he preaches and the word is evangelizes. So he enters death. He evangelizes those who were condemned in the flesh. And the result is, it says, they were made alive in the spirit. Which is, Peter's, Peter uses the same phrase to describe the resurrection of Jesus. He was condemned in the flesh. But God made him alive in the spirit. Now Jesus goes to Hades, and he preaches to the spirits that are bound up there. And those who were condemned in the flesh are made alive in the spirit. So they gather this, right? And so this is what John the Baptist is doing, right? It's like, when he comes, make sure you come. You know? And so, and then back to Satan and Hades, and they're arguing. And boom, Jesus shows up in a blinding light. And he just wipes them out, binds them up shatters the gates and enters in to the lowest parts of the earth, Ephesians says. And where does he go? He goes right to the bottom. And that's where this icon is. I'm going to just guide you through it a little bit. So this is interesting. The early icons were not of the resurrection. It's called the icon of the resurrection. That's up at the top. Anastasis. Resurrection. It's not Jesus exiting the tomb alone. It's Jesus exiting Hades. And he's gone to the bottom of Hades, and he's broken the gates of Hades, That's, and they're shaped like a cross. And he's standing on the broken gates of Hades, and below it are all the, the, the locks and the chains and the hinges of the gates, and they're all shattered. This is, this is coming right out of the Psalms. And here, this, this is what's left the poor Hades. Sometimes it'll be a dragon. Sometimes it'll be a man bound up. But it's what Jesus says, I'm going to, I'm going to bind the strong man and enter his house and plunder his goods. That's this. He's bound the strong man, entered his house, Hades, and he's plundering his goods. Where is he plundering his goods? Oh, he's grabbed two people by the wrists and he's pulling them out of their tombs. Anybody know who these two people are? Adam and Eve. He's gone right down to the bottom of humanity, to the first sinners. And he's pulling them up out of their tombs. And he's going to ascend from there with them and lead a parade of captives in his train. That's Ephesians. And we have these others who've been waiting for him. We've got on the left, David and Solomon. And that's John the Baptist with them. We've got these other guys. It's probably like Isaiah and some of those folks. And, it, and it's just like he's, he's bringing us up out of Hades. This is like truly a victory. 
truly a victory. So this is how they preached the gospel in the early church. Um, I won't pull them up now, but like I've got him after him after him from the third, second, third, fourth century, where it's like Christ has entered death, he has conquered it, he's humiliated it, and he has raised up Adam and Eve with himself. Adam and Eve aren't just two people that lived one time. He's talking about humanity. He's lifted us up with himself. This is such good news that we preach it now. And we go, he did this for you. Want to enjoy it? Do you want to come out of perishing? Do you want to experience fullness of life? It's like, hello. Do you want to come out of anorexia? Do you want to come out of prison? Do you want to come out of abuse? Do you want to come out of being a predator? Do you want to come out of mourning and ashes and being a widower? Do you want to? It's like, of course we do. This, this could preach, and it used to. And it could again. Here's the, here's the thing. The Eastern Church has this theology, and they forgot how to preach it. The Western Church knows how to preach, but I'm not sure what they're always preaching. A fun thing happened in Ethiopia. The Pentecostals and the Ethiopian Orthodox got together. It's the most far extremes of Christian expression. It looks like two religions. What the Pentecostals told me was, the Orthodox know the gospel, but we know how to share it. So we're going to take their gospel and we're going to go share it with Muslims who are having visions and dreams of Jesus. And we're going to try and bring as many of them into the Pentecostal church as we can. <laughs> but we think it may be better if we send them to the Orthodox church to disciple them in this message. And they start working together and it's like the most amazing thing. And these Orthodox who totally forgot how to share are watching the Pentecostals do it using their message. And it's like on fire in the face of persecution and danger and sword. It's like, so? We already died. We're not afraid. And the Muslims are going, sign me up. Isn't that cool? All right. So it, we have one minute for questions. Yes, anything? One minute. One minute. So let's just, okay, you, you can. When you say the Eastern Church, the Orthodox, who are you talking about? Because we obviously have so many denominations and religions that come out of, I don't know. Uh, I, mean, I mean all of the Eastern Orthodox churches, so that would include Russian, Greek, Romanian, Moldovian, Serbian, Georgian, Syrian, Coptic, Egyptian, Ethiopian, like, so that whole, so this is a great, yeah, yeah. Um, now, the debate they have is, will everyone follow Jesus out or not? I guess that's up to us. Hope so. I don't preach it as doctrine. I just share conviction. All right, so at least that's interesting, and you can say, well, don't, you know, that's Brad, he's from Canada, he's Orthodox, and that's really weird, but... Just treat it like a foreigner sharing something, and don't blame Carol. Uh, but I thought you'd want to hear another point of view. And it's a gospel I'm preaching. I'm seeing, like, serious fruit from it. So um, maybe all how I used to preach is also kind of true. I don't know. This is just more fun. So um, let's have lunch. 
Uh, Father in heaven, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who's given us the gift of the Holy Spirit, that we would know the triune God as perfect love that drives out fear and fills us with boldness for the day of judgment, that fills us with boldness to preach a gospel of inclusion, that gives us the joy of preaching the truth that death is broken and I don't need to be afraid ever again. Lord, would you enable us um, to share that good news with people who think they need to hide from you and that we'd welcome them back into the Father's house where they would remember somehow that they're sons and daughters. And, um, and that you'd compel us to go to those who are in the street corners and behind the hedges and still using stuff to numb their pain. And that like it matters to respond, and the sooner the better because they're already perishing. Would you fill us with compassion and love to, to, to reach out to the victims and the predators and to all those who, who, who know what it is to live in the corrosion of the human condition and that we'd offer them fullness of life and joy in the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza beloved member of Central. <laughs>